you could take your t traditional sort of endurance athlete who does a high volume of work and you strip it back and strip it back and say, what are the core pieces in your program yeah. that are yeah. actually giving you 80, 90% of the adaptation? Okay. All right, well, welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast, or welcome back to many of you. Thank you for tuning in. My name's Steve Ingham. I'm a performance scientist by trade, having helped elite athletes and high-performance teams reach their peak through the application of scientific principles over the last 25 years, and now the director of Supporting Champions, which applies the many principles of performance that we've learned from sport, business, and education to those hoping to find a better way to create performance. And the purpose behind these podcasts is to explore the science, the art, the purpose, and the origins of high-performance and I'll be discussing these concepts with the people who have achieved right at the top end, those people who've been a driving force in making high performance happen, and from those who've researched and explored aspects of performance in real depth. So we're founded in sport, but we're equally keen to explore performance in many other industries, such as the arts, business, military, education, and so many others that are supporting and championing an idea, a goal, other people, or a cause. There was an incredible response to the last episode with Tess Morris-Patterson and her pursuit of becoming an astronaut, the one word that kept coming up was inspirational. I love this tweet from Emma Ross at EZ Ross. Utterly inspiring. I nearly missed nursery pickup. I was, I was glued to this in the car. Thanks, Tess, for your open and thoughtful discussion. Hours later, I'm still contemplating lots of what you discussed. Emma, I hope that you've collected your children, uh, but no doubt. And nonetheless, uh, Tess was truly inspiring. Another one from Chris Neville outstanding podcast from a truly humble honest and determined woman at astro perform is a great example to a young generation of aspiring scientists early career sacrifice and after 15 years not afraid to fail powerful messages thanks thanks also to kp swim 88 and james sprague for some great reviews on itunes and if you too are enjoying the podcast then please do so too and so to this week's discussion, a fascinating exploration of the concept of stress adaptation paradigm with stalwarts from the podcast Jamie Pringle from Performance Science Distillery and from Rosie Mays from the EB Centre. We explore what a stimulus is and does and the factors that determine the effectiveness of a stimulus and the experiences in the environment that will mitigate any adaptive responses. We go on to explore the concept of individualization and a group response from both physical and a cognitive performance perspective, and then broaden that to the application to work, to business, and the very concept of progression, the achievement of mastery. As ever, the discussion was incredibly stimulating. We went in all sorts of different directions to flesh out the topic fully and do our very best to try and drill down to some guiding ideas and philosophies that can help us all move forward. So today we're going to be getting into a specific topic and that is stress adaptation and I think this is one of the most fascinating topics not only in performance sport but in our own personal growth, personal development. So, um, so Jamie I'm keen to get to the basics of maybe the history of, of this stress adaptation idea. Where did it first come from? Well, I think where it first comes from is, is probably more scientific and more theoretical than what, probably what the context that we're going to discuss today around what it actually means for the performer, for the individual that you've just described. Um, but if you go right back, you know, the people who, the person really who kind of coined that area of stress and adaptation and the idea of something could be positive stress or mm. negative stress was Hans Sale in the, um, in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And his work was really mostly around, um, if you like, a uh, systemic hormonal response, how your body responds to uh, different stressors or different challenges, and it might respond, as I say, positively or negatively. Most of his work was with animals. Um, then, obviously, it's been taken into the human domain, and he had working with humans as well. But I think that might be the background for him. You can pick up on bits of that, of kind of the dimensions that he, if you like, the term terminology that he created... But really, if you fast forward to now, we're talking around about if I'm an athlete or if I'm a coach programming an athlete's um, uh, exercise schedule, when I put a piece of work in there, how is the body going to respond to it? Um, in the session itself, 
so the session might be the actual where you see fatigue, where you see tiredness, but also afterwards and the hours, the minutes, the hours and the days and potentially the weeks and months afterwards of how you've got a long-term adaptation to mm. the stimulus you're putting in. So for me, that's really kind of where it comes from, but I'm, I'm really fascinated not so much with the input, because we could talk about that for days and hours you know, on end, because that's about how you achieve a stimulus, how you achieve the stress. But it's that black box of, here's our input, and here's our adaptation. What is happening in that black box of the body, um, and then potentially of the mind as well, in terms mm. of actual you know, cognitive development, that is allowing that stress to be converted to adaptation that's beneficial. Okay, so let's, let's get into that in a, in a bit, but, but talk us through it. So you're talking about positive stress and negative stress, though. So, so you're getting a, a fatiguing or almost a suppression in your abilities. Talk us through the, the response. What, what should someone experience in exercise? In, after in, exercise or some, yeah. sort of, or some sort of stressor? And then what happens after that? Yeah. Well, I think we might pick up on this in, in, you know, in a few minutes' time, the idea of that no pain, no gain concept. Mm. You know, that you've got to push into an area of discomfort or fatigue or... In, actual pain, you know, if that is the, you know, yeah. the scenario you're looking at, because that then allows you to uh, create a, um, an input into the, the muscle's probably the easiest one to describe. Yeah, so if you're loading your muscle and then you're actually saying, right, we're now loading it to a point that something in there is, ad- is adapting. There's, a, there's, a, um, there's gene expression, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's being switched on that then builds, creates, repairs, and potentially builds more than what you had before. And that concept around the supercompensation, where you have to push into a, you have to dig a hole and then you climb back out of it. Okay, I like that. So the the body's te- the body. Uh, I, I relate to this idea that the body's giving you feedback and this sort of inner voice of saying, "What are you doing that for?" <laughs> um, Rosie, from a from an athlete coach point of view, uh, can you relate to that that? almost investment of stress yes yeah I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing about the future as well that, that, that sounds incredibly interesting and how we take that into business and use the, the metaphor back in business and um, two things spring to mind uh, as we're talking about that <clears throat> early days I was part of the Loughborough Sports Science mm. team when uh, Dr Mary Neville was doing her PhD research into sprint adaptation and I was one of the team that had the biopsies, you know, we did the post-training, pre-training, post-training, really. I didn't know you'd had a biopsy. That's I've a had 12. Right of passage. So, so I've got 12 little scars on my thighs and mm-hmm. literally the, the, the commitment to the science to find out what was going on with the training intensity, the, the commitment to the actual I was going to swear then, the training, the bloody training was so hard. (laughs) Um, And the motivation for it, for me, was not, um, oh, what is my body going to happen? My motivation was, this is Mary Neville's PhD, and this is the betterment of science, so how do we find out about what's going on in the muscles? Um, I, I loved being part of that exploration where you could do the invasive exploration about what was the training load doing Mm. Um, but the mental stimulation to do it was you do it because you're committed to something more than just that science you're committed to the group of people that you're part of now this wasn't this wasn't yesterday was it this was a while ago this 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 quite sophisticated almost not particularly invasive now. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, you're still taking muscle out. But I'm imagining you, it was quite it hardcore. Was, it was hardcore stuff. Yeah, um, and in fact, I have to confess, my first muscle biopsy, I'd never seen one and didn't actually know what was going to happen. And um, you know, when you don't know what you don't know, and I'm thinking, oh, this is a bit painful. When who, who took it? Was it? Uh, well, if I say no, that. <laughs> It was. He's very good at taking. He was brilliant. And, you know, you have the little incision and then you have two incisions. And one, you take the muscle first, you do the exercise, you swing off the the computer, the the treadmill, as quickly as possible for him to whip it over and get in with his plunger. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As quickly as possible. And I just had no idea what it was all about. And. And I think the conditioning for me was the knowledge that your muscles don't have pain receptors was a <laughs> real important thing to say. This is just pressure. It's not pain. B- 
because if you thought it was pain, you'd say it's pain. Um, yeah. And that's old science back then. No, no, you're right. But I, I'm, I'm just so impressed by your single-mindedness to go, there's my leg, you get yeah, on with it, yeah, I trust you. Yeah, you can have both legs and give me the yeah. Tesco's food afterwards, other shops are still available. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in terms of athlete awareness, so you're talking about being a scientist yeah. there, yeah. But, but awareness as an athlete of thinking that, that I'm investing here in, in something. Yeah, I, I guess as a coach then, uh, I mean, a, a piece from the coaching perspective was working with the Republic of Ireland netball team. And netball mm. was a very small sport and probably still is in the Republic. And I came over as this scientific coach. And they were beautiful players to, that, that responded to me saying, you know, we're going to do some fitness testing here, bleep test. And you're going to go do six months of training and then we're going to test you again. And this was all building up to a world championships in 91. And... and I guess it was again that that lovely response to there's something bigger in this mm. than doing the hard work and then never having been exposed to this kind of scientific training from, from a coach. But my lasting memory was when we came to the second fitness test, I mean it's the multi-stage shuttle run bleep test, and I remember saying, right, we're going to retest you and the girls were all lining up on the line and I turned away and came back and they were all standing looking at each other's legs and saying, gosh, your legs have changed and yours, you know, it's this lovely, all of this work has been worth it okay. because of us all moving on and our game improved. But this real down-to-earth thing of saying, gosh, haven't your legs changed? Mm. And just seeing all these girls comparing legs. You know, you know, you'll just go back a step to your biopsy study. How many other people were in that study? Can you remember how many people were involved? It would have been about eight or 12 people. Okay, yes. so a typical number. Yeah. Because what you're describing um, so many years ago um, is still the model, it's still the way, and it's still kind of the gold standard model about trying to actually now almost get under the bonnet, get under the hood of, you know, find out what's going on in the muscle, because the muscle's the easiest place to measure that adaptation, albeit through a, yeah. a needle. But it's still the same paradigm, it's still the same concept, and it's still the same learnings around, okay, we can take, we can take a piece of muscle from you, from you, from me, from you, and we can go and do exactly the same training session and have a look, as you said, immediately afterwards, a couple of hours afterwards, a couple of days afterwards, a couple of weeks afterwards, and we'd all respond differently. Yeah. Yeah. So in your 8, 10, 12 people who did that, you know, there will be a response curve, a dose response to the same dose yeah. with a different type of response. And that's the bit that I think that's never going to change because that's mm -hmm. the human. But I'm also really fascinated by that because then that's, we can only, it's, it's difficult to interpret that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the more of that that builds up, the more we understand how physical training works, uh, the more we understand how we can optimize it for a person. But also there's the other concept, and we're probably going to pick up on this, is that what you do then at that point in time will also, in your response to that training, will be dependent on what you've done in the years and the months yes. and the years before. Yeah. And so you a year later or a year before would have got a different response yes. because you're training history. Yeah. Because of the the long term, you know, if you like, accumulation of the gains that you've got from the stimulus that you've been putting in. And so those those just add levels of complexity to the story of trying to understand adaptation. They're really hard to untangle. Yes. But they are actually the key pieces we do need to work with. You know, the individual, their history, their status at that moment in time, the comparison between us, because yes. you throw this at it, but some of us thrive and some, some of us don't and some of us crumble. Mm. Yes, yeah. So there's all those, there's so many dynamics, so many different dimensions to it, but uh, if we can get a handle on it, and what you were doing so many years ago <laughs> was... Uh, <laughs> You know, the real sort of the bedrock of what you're seeing now yes. in, in yeah. most of the gene expression work. Yeah. So as you're talking there, I'm, I'm always wondering, besides the fact that we were born and then we age... Um, <laughs> and pay taxes in the middle, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm wondering if, if there's any meaningful change in our physical structures, perhaps in our learning, that doesn't come from some sort of stress. Uh, I'm trying to think of examples that, that, that might occur, we adapt to respond to, um, changes inv invoked, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't come from a stress. I can't really mm. think of something. Maybe we need to open that one up as a, as a question if, if people who are listening or watching can but think But are of you coming into that saying stress as in a distress or eustress as in that negative or positive aspect? Because if you do go back to sales early work, you know, that was the kind of the phrases he was coining to say, 
I guess the same stimulus thrown at one person can be positive and can be negative. Right. Not maybe in the in the context of exercise training and adaptation. That's that's kind of not separate, but it's you know it's it's one angle of it. It might be more of around a you know a cognitive perception of something. That's bad. That's good. Yeah. Well, I think it was um, it was Walter Cannon that coined the phrase "fight or flight." Harvard physiologist right. and. And he used to t- use the term stress a lot. So it's clearly a stress-based response. Um, I want to sort this out through aggression or get out of here because of, a, of some sort of um, uh, stress-based response. So I'm not necessarily thinking about whether we have a negative consequence, yeah. you know, degeneration of, of, as a consequence of stress. I'm just thinking about how you create change and adaptation. How do we improve any change, I wonder if it comes from a stressor. I'm going to appreciative inquiry is yeah. where my head has gone because appreciative inquiry is where we continue to reinforce the good. So what have you done that you've done before that worked mm. and you keep going that, that mm. way? And I'm thinking, well, is that a stressor? Right. So that's where I've, I've kind of gone that way as opposed to I absolutely get that when we struggle, we are going to learn from our struggle yeah. and learn new ways and get insights that take us forward. So whether the ah, stress okay. is a physical stress or the stress is a mental stress, and therefore that's where it's taken me is, ooh, do, do we always get, do we always have to have stress? Right. Yeah. So you could reflect on something that perhaps isn't a stressor or potentially you can through sort of vicarious learning observe somebody else and you can improve upon that yeah. um, so we're different levels of, of change and adaptation yes. but perhaps actually experiencing it in the flesh or physically or mentally is probably the most pronounced yes yeah yeah um, I don't know why this is falling into my head falling into my head but when you were talking now I was thinking around almost like that minimum effective dose kind of concept mm. that, you know, maybe this is, uh, there's a few kind of key people in, in my history of, of understanding how training works. One of them being people like Tim, Tim Noakes, um, 25, 30 years ago, he, you know, he would coin that phrase. I think, I don't know if he coined it, but he would refer to, don't just look at what you're doing, but look at what's the minimum you can do to achieve that. That as a concept stuck with me ever since. It's you know I, you could take your t- traditional sort of endurance athlete who does a high volume of work, and you strip it back and strip it back and say, what are the core pieces in your program yeah. that are yeah. actually giving you 90 percent of the adaptation? Okay. <clears throat> so the minimum effective dose aspect, and, and I think that's a good starting point when you're setting training, physical training. And I want, I'm wondering if that has a similar sort of um, parallel to when you're actually looking at somebody's ability to, to think, ability mm. to solve problems, ability to develop cognitively as well. So I, I was thinking from a physical point of view, you know, when you're setting a training schedule and you look endurance athletes at the typical high volume where you think, actually, you might be doing 100 miles a week of running, but it's probably 30, 40 miles of it because of this, this and this are giving you most of your adaptation. Right. So that minimum effective dose, can we just work with those things get most of what you do and then you can take away I always refer to the idea of headroom be something yeah. I'll talk about later is that if you can actually get the most from that then you work with that they're kind of the first things on your you know your penciling and onto your weekly program so I, I think that is a fairly clear concept from a physical perspective but I'm interested from a broader perspective of actually learning cognitive adaptation people's ability to think well let's get into that for a moment because I think that's one of the the most important topics in this stress adaptation space because um, what what benefit can you get from a minimum dose yeah to, to me sounds the most sensible version of that weighing scale the, the balance now I think that's difficult to break particularly for athletes where they think more is better because yeah. you invest in some training and you get a response you invest in a little bit more training yeah that classic principle of overload. Yeah. I've got used to that. And you can now see that in some of the genetic studies, the genetic response, where effectively the same dose given to an untrained person yeah. um, won't even touch the sides for, for an elite trained yeah. population. Yeah. And that as, as you become more and more specialised and better, you, you just don't get the, 
the disruption in homeostasis. But if that's one end of your spectrum down here, the other end is the athlete who's gone and pushed more and more and more and broken. Yeah. So yes. then in terms of the retrospective look at it, it's gone, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. But the learning from that is that the minimum effective dose, you, you go back and you say, right, I'm going to rewrite my program. What are the things I know work for me? Mm. That, that, and that. And then everything else fits in around it. So that is a learning exercise. Maybe you, you, know, you have to get to that point to see it. Well, that's it. The that's ultimately the tightrope that you tread, isn't it? That if you don't invest yeah. enough, you're not going to improve as much as you could do. If you underinvest, you're not going to improve as yes. much as you could yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. And and there's been a lot of controversy around some of these recovery techniques um, in the physical side of things: ice baths, compression garments, all these sorts of things. So that someone experiences a physical stress and then they whack all this recovery into the system. It's another input. And the question mark is whether mm -hmm. actually you're shortcutting the adaptation. I feel better. Yeah. I feel yeah. better the day after. <laughs> I'm ready to go again. I can do more miles. Mm. But the question is whether people are actually improving any further or whether they're just mm. taking away the signal that was there to, to improve them in the first place. I think that's difficult to deal with. I think that's hard. You know, what we, we, we can have that discussion now, but in real terms, if I'm trying to write a program for somebody, mm. what you just described conceptually, I totally understand it, but it's actually difficult to convert that into where are, not the limits for somebody, but how, do I, how well do I know this person yeah. that if I'm trying to plan their training yeah. as the coach, that I know that, you know, uh, that I know can yeah. I push them today because tomorrow is another day and yesterday was the day before and they've done something then that I'm... Well that time-based dynamic is really important in the sense that what might work for somebody and you get confirmation around it working when they're 22 years old, yeah. you could probably throw anything at a 22 year old and they'll improve, <laughs> yeah. um, is not necessarily going to work for them when they're a 32 year old. Yeah. Um, as Aging starts to kick in, the body's recovery processes aren't quite as slick, for example. Mm. Yes, and it strikes me, I've been working with a triathlete in the last um, few months who's quite, you know, more later in his career, and he's gone through every training method you could ever imagine as a triathlete. You know, they do high volume, high intensity, and combinations of. But he's so far advanced in his career and understanding of himself and his self awareness. But it's kind of now to the point he, he knows that, as you just said, what worked when he was 22. What was really interesting is over this, he had a long summer off after an injury, and he came back off the back of that in such an adaptable state. If that's the right word. Um, <laughs> Go on, give us that again. Adaptable. Uh, adaptive. That's the one. That's the one. Adaptable. One. Sounds like Adaptive. a really tasty cereal. <laughs> Edit my English language inadequacies out of that, please. Um, adaptive state that. Well, you say anything, but he was in the, he's near the, not the end of his career, but he's in the senior part of his career. Yeah. But anything you threw at him, he was getting fitter. And he was on a curve that's going like that. Now, that's great, and you've got to learn from it. You say, that's really boosted me up the curve. But then there'll be a point at which that curve starts to plateau, and you're saying, what do we do next? Because we've done 80% of our effort to get to here, and it's not another 20% to get a bit further. It's going to be another 80%. It's that Pareto's law again. So you get to there, and you think, well, actually... There is a learning here of being able to step back from it, find out what the minimum effective dose was, strip away all the costly bits. So that's a, that was a really interesting example of someone who's in the mid, like uh, early mid thirties as an athlete, long training history, but actually because of rest, because of stepping away from the stressor, they come back to it and can adapt so much more. Mm. But for already a high starting point mm. as well. But the piece for me, there's two pieces there. I'm thinking of Federer coming back after his rest and yeah. then being so. So just will be unbeatable on the world stage. Not just physically, but technically yeah, and mentally. Yeah, well. and I was listening in there about the role of the coach and the role of the scientist being able to enable the athlete to know what's going on in their body mm. so that they can tell you what you can't see and, and how critical I think that is in, in a coaching philosophy about or a scientific philosophy about... How do you help the person understand what's going on for them and name it? And I think that's what athletes are really good at, is knowing the minutiae of what's going on in a body compared yeah. to business people and being able to articulate that in a way 
that you as the scientist or you as the coach can go, okay, I'm hearing that, so mm. that means this, and this is how I can now bring my specific skill and expertise, which is the innovative ways in which we take you on again and again. Yeah. And it's the combination of that, and, and not the tell scientist and not the tell coach. But the currency that you're all dealing with there is, is a, an aspect of truth. It's a perception of truth as well yes. as a, you know, whatever, yeah. wherever the truth yeah. is, but it's a belief in the truth, which is pretty difficult. And that's a real skill for anyone to have, to yeah. have the relationship yes. that you can have that discussion, you can have that truth. Yeah. How is that for you? Yeah. And, and, you know, I go back to a really basic principle I believe in, in, in terms of performance enhancement, enhancement is individualization. You know, that's what yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. And the relational part of that um, is is going to be critical, you know, yeah. and when we extract that into the business world, I believe the future of good leadership, good business in the future will be about relationships, about how we get that kind of knowing in our business world, the way the athlete and the coach and the scientists mm. have that understanding of their unique role in this performance enhancement. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's get into that because that's a really interesting dynamic that, that just bridges to whole different spheres in terms of, I know this works for me under those circumstances, in those conditions yesterday, um, but also looking forward and yeah. think, keeping an open mind yes. as, to, as to what's the best ingredients for future success. Yes. How, do yeah. we, how do we best support that mindset I mean, from, from my own reading and listening in, Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset mm. is, is fascinating about those who hold a closed mindset say, I can't do it, and they'll shut down, and they're looking for, in the moment, uh, achievement of goals and tick box. Those who have a growth mindset, I can't do it yet. Mm. And it's the, the mindset that says... Just because I can't do it now doesn't mean I can't do it in the future and therefore what do I need to do and what am I willing to take on board and yeah. try and experiment with and not see the fact I can't do it now as a failure but just as a moment in time to move forward. Mm. And, and for, for me, just shifting that I think it is probably easier in sport than it is necessarily in business to where we, are, we have a very... A history of a very fixed mindset, I think. Yeah. That, but that in itself is is a challenge for a top performer because the, their self-efficacy is so central to their belief that I can do this and I can achieve under this future stressful challenge. Yeah. They're basing that judgment on what went in before, the input, as yeah. you yeah. described yeah. it, Jamie. And so I've got security and I've got stability because of, of what I've done yeah. that led to success yes. but now I've potentially got to keep an open mind but I really want to crystallise that routine yeah. because that's got me to the top of the mountain and I think um, my experience in terms of when I've worked in that coaching realm when you're actually prescribing training a very str uh, useful, strong, powerful exercise with an athlete uh, at, with a performer is, is to kind of just go and explore the landscape of training explore the different sessions that you could do and how you respond in the session to the session after the session because I think it helps calibrate the scale of what we're talking about here of um, what you can do what you can do in that moment in time I know I can do that session you've told me I've got to go out and ride my bike for six hours and do this up this hill and that and so on I've done it before so I know what that will feel like and I know what my body can do and it might not be that you need to do that but you've done it You've done it back here earlier in your career, maybe 10 years before, when you're in a very adaptive state. But I think just having that exploration of the landscape and being able to try the different sessions is actually a really good task. It's a good, it's a good way for the coach to understand the athlete. But I would also throw one extra layer onto that, is that I don't think we should always just look at the session. You should look at the idea of headroom, what you've got above and beyond. So explore that concept of headroom. Well, this is the bit that I'm always going to come back to, is, you know, we're talking about the input the black box of how the body responds and then you can actually see an adaptation, you can see a change. There's somewhere in there where it says, I know I can, I've, I'm throwing this much at it, that's where I'm at. But actually I could do more, I've got this, I've got the headroom up to here. So I know I'm not pushing all the way up to what my body is capable of, I'm not breaking just yet, I've got headroom. Mm. And I wonder if that headroom concept actually is the way to look at training, it's not about the input, it's about 
what it's taking out of the body. It's a bit more multifactorial, maybe a bit more um, complex, a lot more complex than that. But I'm always going to look at that with an athlete to say, I know you could do that, but that's only 75% of what you really could do if we turn the dial up or you go long or you whatever it might be. I'm just keeping an eye on that of understanding that because if you've got an athlete who's operating, like the example I gave you before is when someone's coming back from an injury, a very well-trained individual with a long training history is very adaptable, but they've got massive headroom. Mm. So they've got a massive response to it, but there will be a point at which it starts to do this. And of course, if you start to push against that headroom, you'll potentially have a risk of cracking. Okay. But is it that actually, as you go through your career, the headroom's getting higher and higher and higher? And that's the thing we have to keep a, an eye on. Um, okay. Exploring the landscape, going out and doing the really high volume, you know, 30 hours a week of training or whatever it might be, or the really high intensity at one at the other end of the spectrum, tells so, you where that So you're is. talking about ver- as much variety to keep the stimulus fresh as yes. well as exploring what you're capable of, of achieving. Well, the, the variety piece is really important because, you know, if you try to say, well, I'm trying to achieve this, what's the best session to do that? I don't think that's the right way to no. look at it. The way to look at it is we, you've got multiple sessions that will give you kind of a similar response. So you use multiple sessions to kind of give you the similar response. You know, um, yeah. Don't try and pair match a session to an outcome. That's not going to be particularly productive and it's going to be fairly futile. Yeah, I remember, I remember a lot of the 400 meter runners had read Michael Johnson's book and Clyde Hart used to do a session every month or so, which was he would run for, for 43 seconds and they would clock the distance that he covered so that was one of their measurement sessions and so they had this glut of 400 meter runners just doing that as a session all the time because yeah. Michael Johnson did it yes. as yeah. opposed to finding what works for them yes um, cut and paste so that's an interesting interesting concept of being able to explore that headroom mm. uh, and test yourself it, well, it comes back to the overtraining concept, doesn't it? I think we've talked about this before, is that one of the key antecedents of overtraining is monotony of training, of mm-hmm. you know, just throwing the same stuff, the same stuff. So if that's an antecedent of overtraining, potentially an antecedent of adaptation is, is, is variation. And so if we have many ways of achieving the same endpoint, use them you know, and uh, explore them. Explore what might work the best in terms of giving you the adaptation with less of the cost, because it might be, for whatever reason, mechanically metabolically, fuel-wise. So I'm really interested by that. And I'm interested around, you know, we come back to this idea, you throw the same stimulus at us three and we'll all adapt differently for a whole variety of different reasons. Mm. But if I can explore those, and I think it's a good skill as a coach to try and explore that landscape to say, we've probably got five or six different sessions and they come out with the same endpoint. So let's go and explore and see what works for you. See how we can push you and increase that head, uh, increase that headroom increase the level of adaptation you can throw at you. But I, I, I'm zooming out from that from a physical mm. point of view and trying to think, how does that apply also to you know, other areas of, mm. of learning, of understanding yourself and so on? I'm going to look at you for that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that as a scientist, you have a sense of what is possible and how to get there. And then if you take that into business and you want to innovate and be creative, you might not even know what might be possible. Because mm. there isn't a physical or yes. a physiological head ceiling, yeah. I guess. But are there principles that will help you guide that? Well, I, I guess the, yeah, I guess the principles in business would be or in innovation is is fail fast, isn't it? It is actually have a mm. go. Don't be scared to have a go. Because as you fail you'll learn and you can mm. go again. Which, if you go back to our earlier conversation about the failing fast, might be pain for some people. How do we, mm. how do we not experience failure as yeah. pain? Because if we experience failure as pain, we don't want to go there. But if you're in a creative environment that says, if we get it wrong, we're learning from it. And mm. that's the positive. Yeah. And the ability to fail fast to be able to go again. So uh, I don't know whether you can fail fast in, in physiology nowadays because of the consequence of failure. I think the consequence in business of failure is the shaming of it, the I, I am a failure. So creating the environment to say failure 
is okay and failure actually is needed yeah. if we are to push on mm-hmm. beyond what we've ever done before. And so that's where that, where that took my head. Yeah, I remember uh, I read recently Moonwalking with Einstein, Joshua Frewer, and he so that the uh, the book is about how as a journalist he went to observe a memory competition and and then started to get fascinated by it, started to practice these techniques, was egged on to to enter the US memory competition. Memory competitions. Right. So so um, remembering faces or um, numbers, for example, yeah. a list of those. And one of the exercises that he, uh, he had to learn was, was memorizing a pack of cards in order. And he noticed that his, his performance times improved up to a point and then it started to plateau. And he was in contact and was being experimented upon by Anders Ericsson, a famous uh, expertise um, expert, and um, and he said you need to intensify your learning now. And he gave the example: if you, most people get up to a decent level of, of typing speed just through rehearsal and practice, but if they want to go to the next level, they need to deliberately intensify it. So fast, fast typing, irrespective of the number of mistakes oh. that are made, okay. and therefore failing. That the failure yes. rate is higher, yes. yes, as opposed to necessarily I need to make this all word perfect, yes. But ultimately, if you want to improve your typing speed, you, you have to intensify it. And this ability to perform under pressure, almost acclimatizing your skill to mm. each of the different levels, seems mm. to be quite topical, really, for self improvement. Mm. 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 I juggle at the moment and uh, I juggled with three balls and then tried to juggle with four balls mm. and my juggling with three balls got much better and now I'm juggling with four balls and my goal is actually to juggle with five balls so can you write this down Steve bring me the juggling balls next <laughs> time the, the, the juggling balls are going to be right. um, and, and the fascination of how quickly you have to juggle use your hands before therefore it's so much easier when you come back to three because it's so much slower right, okay, um, yeah. but the skill is the same throwing and catching uh, there's good discussions though on, on there around in this case what you just described actually physical learning of skill loads of great discussions and I'm not the right person I don't think any of us are the right person to have that but even from a, just a pure physiological ad- adaptation perspective I'm always fascinated you know when you're dealing with um, let's say take our middle distance runner who has to run fast but not peak speed mm-hmm. so they have to expose mm-hmm. themselves to the mechanics of running at, at pace 800 meter pace and the le- stride length and the stride turnover mm-hmm. and the physical conditioning to deliver that and you can kind of get into that you know we need to run fast to run fast so why we need to pull that top speed up that's the yeah. best way we're going to get fast but what happens for the person who is the 60 meter specialist you know how do they run fast because they are running as fast as they can hmm. so do you do that over speed training where you may yeah, be running, okay. running down the hill so just these different things I'm just as yeah. you were talking thinking of ways that you can achieve that principle in physical training um, where you just change the I don't know if it's being prepared to fail it's just going beyond isn't it well it, I suppose it is to a certain extent you know the, the, the fact this concept that if you do some training on the surface of it you might think well I'm fitter now I've finished my run no, mm. one's, no one's fitter at the end of a marathon uh, they are they are frazzled yeah. and that's the stimulus that's the failure yeah. of the system it's it's um, it's a su- suppression of it from which you get this Adaptation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but we just talked about a couple of examples there that sort of hit the mark of specificity. That you know, to go and run a marathon, I need to have completed the marathon distance sometime in training. Do you? You know, I would question. Do you? Because adaptation doesn't come just from specificity. It comes from intensity, the overload, and it comes from some very complex gene expression. And you know. Um, okay, but that that might be from a physical point of view. Yes. But if you're going into something that is quite uh, intense, um, whether it's volume or intensity, something that is a challenge, then you don't want to be too far out of your comfort zone. You want to, at least from a psychological point of view, know I've been as close to that as possible. That the best predictor of mass population marathon performance is having done one before, yeah. for yeah. example. Yeah. 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 So there was the, the mental piece there that I was hearing there. You, you're relating to the physiological and the physical part, you're relating to the mental part, and both being important. Yeah. Mm. And, I, and I go to... And they're not separate. 
No, no, that's no. Key piece, I, I, you know. Absolutely, the whole systemic piece yeah. is absolutely critical. And what, where it took me was the mindset that many people have as a driver, which is to be perfect. Yeah. And to be perfect, getting in the way of adaptation or creativity, because it stops you going beyond the, the absolute best you can do. Yeah. And, and recognising that actually not being perfect... That's a, much, that's a much more contemporary view now, isn't yeah. it? Um, although the standards and expectations are going up and up, that ability to test and learn quickly is, is vital. Yeah. I read recently that the founder of LinkedIn said, if you're, not, if you're not prepared to be embarrassed by your product at launch, then you've gone too late. Yes, yes, that's what they're saying about those uh, companies that come that's in. Good one, Do you like that? Yeah. yeah. Hang on, you, okay. You're right. Processing, processing. Yeah. Yes. So those companies that come in and steal the march are the ones that come in yeah. not perfect. So Uber and certain other companies in, in the Industrial Revolution, the, the fourth Industrial Revolution that we're in at the moment, it is those that come in and people go, oh, no, they'll never make it. They'll right. never take over because they're not good enough. Mm. And they suddenly come up from, from inside the, the sector yeah. uh, and then steal the march because they're, they're prototyping. You know, okay. this doesn't work, we'll go again. This doesn't work, we'll go again. Yeah. So the, the famous Hungarian psychologist, author of Flow, no one can ever say his name, but I'm going to give it a go. Mihai Chink sent me high. Thank you. Not bad. Hungarian. Now we've got a strong connection with hung, Hungary. It seems as though... Can you forget the country. Can you spell it? Uh, no. Okay. I can so, spell Hungary. Yeah. <laughs> so Mihai Chink sent me high, talked about uh, learning and flow total immersion that was his big concept about being absolutely in the zone but either side of that was a requirement to not only have immersion he talked about incubation so time off task so that then you had a further inspiration so immersion incubation inspiration really raising the prominence of recovery mm. for your ability to, to realise and learn and adapt further. Uh, and the incubation time off task, I've gone to mindfulness. Mm. And that's where that took me, of this ability when we're, we're in the workplace and we do things and we struggle with it and then to completely be able to switch off yeah. and be at peace and close the mind down to then come back again and I'm mm. wondering what the adaptations then are happening in the unconscious the subconscious I, I don't know if this fits right here but I'm going to throw it in anyhow is you know some of that probably well probably really only in the last five years around how if you like the mental the cognitive side of things actually influencing physical adaptation or in some senses maybe not the adaptation but the ability to perform so you add in a degree of mental mm -hmm. fatigue whatever you want to call that and it might influence your uh, ability to do a time to exhaustion trial. Okay. Sam McCaw's work down in Kent has yeah. you know, pushed in that area. But also it kind of then comes back, the broader perspective of that is things like pain. You know, if, uh, if we use caffeine as a, lots of coffees, you'll be able to go harder, you know, because and that's not, it's not giving you more oxygen. It's not giving you more muscle mm. fibers. It's giving you a sense, it's, it's altering the feedback of which your understanding, your regulation of your intensity in this case. Mm. Paracetamol is a drug, it's an analgesic, and it will make you go faster. You know? So there's these things here now that with this cognitive physical aspect, they're not cognitive as in decision-making, but they're aspects of how you're controlling your body, how you're delivering your effort, the intensity of your effort, or your ability to suffer. And I'm wondering what gets numbed then that you don't want numbed. So when you're taking mm. those performance enhancing substances uh, what is the downside of that? Well there's a little bit, I mean it's yeah, paracetamol and performance enhancing is a, is a bit of a controversial area because you know we're, well it's a grey area isn't it? One of the things there, some of the good work on that is showing that your pacing ability, your ability to judge your intensity and actually deliver an effort particularly in a high intensity short duration uh, races and, or competition will be changed and you've got to know how to d deal yeah, with that yeah. because you might go off too fast too soon right um so there's aspects like that i'm then that's talking about performing yes 
Um, and there's equal studies to your point of if you take ibuprofen or paracetamol, it gives somebody a stimulus that they don't adapt in the same way. Well, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. They don't have the mm-hmm. gene transcription mm-hmm. and growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is perhaps a differentiation here in terms yep. of uh, I want to experience deliberately stressing my body, progressing overload, mm-hmm. progressing my mind or my task in order to improve but potentially making it easier for training. This is about the sort of yeah. hard training, easy combat, or easy training, hard combat principle. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you might want to stress the, the preparation. Throw one extra thing, and it's not going down the analgesic route, but you know, training in a low carbohydrate state or a low muscle glycogen state. So when the muscle fiber has got less fuel to call upon, it will make that muscle fiber adapt more. So you're putting it in a deliberately stressful state, mm. but you don't want to race like that because no, you'll yeah. be left. Yeah the far end of the uh, course, you know, begging for a Coca-Cola. Mm. Um, but that might be those, you know, it's the same sort of principle, it's just a different, um, a different mechanism. Yeah, can, can that be applied for your own professional performance where you make things deliberately stressful for yourself? Before well, you well, I was thinking about the work situation. <laughs> There's so many stressful things and the, the key piece that I think business is learning from sport is actually the recovery. Yeah. So that's the the I, I don't think I don't think the business environment has any difficulty overstressing people in all sorts of ways. What they're not necessarily quite so good at is mm. where sport is much better now is how do we ensure recovery is put in there so adaptation can happen. Yeah. Um, so that we're talking about productivity there, aren't we? Mm-hmm. In terms of the progress you have against a meaningful goal. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, more is not necessarily better. Yes. Is that the dynamic yeah. you're yeah. referring to? Yeah, well, I think there's two dy- dy- um, dynamics there. I think there is being um, mindful or, cogn- or, or conscious of what you're doing mm. and, and what's likely to happen. And, and I really do think that the business world hasn't really strongly cottoned on to the importance of reducing the stimulus to get the adaptation. So if you think of the super compensation curve, I'm I'm not sure there's, well, I think there's massive potential still Mm. available to to normal human beings if we build in the recovery phase Mm. and that ability to get the super compensation afterwards. And I think it's a terminology that that the business people quickly pick up when they're exposed to it as a concept. Yeah, I think, I mean, so in that sense, you've given us an example of how... um, some sort of pharmaceutical agent can change the way your brain perceives effort. Yeah. So there's mind affecting physical. Here, perhaps we're, we're talking about examples such as walk and talk, uh, the physical changing the mental state, switching from yeah. on task, yeah. yes. beta wave activity, I'm, I'm focused, and then potentially I get stuck. And the corollary of that is get out, move, yes. change yes. the alpha yes. wave state so that there's uh, ideas, there's creativity. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so for me there, it is, is, that's the recovery piece from that mental piece is yeah. moving into a physicality mm. that changes the physiology. And I, my take on that is that that's a great win-win. Is that we is that we're overlapping the physical and the mental and probably the emotional and the spiritual mm. uh, energies yeah. by doing more than one at one time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I read some research just recently, uh, which which I really relate to, and I think anyone I ever speak to does. Where you get stuck, and then you think, "Oh, I better go and fetch something," and you and you leave the room. Yes, and then you leave the room and go, "Oh." I can't remember what I was going to do. And there was some research that looked about, thinking about tribal boundaries, sort of from an evolutionary point of view, and that you have to have a change in mental state from going from a safe, protective boundary out into the wild, where ultimately you were under, mm-hmm. under threat. And that crossing a threshold is a very, is a very conscious thing that, that, that you can do to change your mental state, to think, and that would explain why I wander around the house or wander around the office thinking, what was I going to do? So, so the, um, the concept for our own performance here is quite important because with more and more things becoming automated, everything 
you know, online or computerized these days, the, the general shift towards the, the creative space being more and more important for decision making, for, for breakthroughs, and so that creative space about getting recovery, getting that inspiration as to what the, yeah. the next change might be. And there's a piece for me in all of this about unknowing thyself and knowing oneself and understanding how you learn your, about yourself and your own self-reflection techniques and tools. Mm. That, that, it feels like what we're talking about is out there a lot of the time. But there is this, what's, what's the, the push-on that's needed in the future? I think the more people are aware of how they learn how they make sense of the world, how they cope with pressure, how they reduce away from unwanted work that they really don't need to be wanting yeah. to do. Uh, it all comes from that insight into if you, why I do what I do. And how, if you've got a responsibility for somebody else, if you're coaching in the, in the broader sense, mm. the looser sense of the term, if you've got a responsibility to take somebody else on that journey or help them on that journey... That's the bit that fascinates me is how much do you just set the environment for that exploration or you actually deliberately push people into areas to say, let's go and test yourself you know, and we'll do this sort of training session or we'll do this environment or this challenge. And I'm, I think that's, you're not talking just about understanding yourself, you're now talking about somebody understanding you and letting that other person coach you through that or you as the, as the coach understanding somebody else. They just don't want to understand themselves, and those those dynamics are fascinating and sound very hard. Mm. Well, I suppose there's a question to you: Do you think a good coach and a good scientist can coach an athlete if they don't understand themselves really truly? Um, that's a good question, and I think. I think we might have touched upon this previously, the idea that as this, I'll put myself on the, where the, the scientist, the practitioner's hat, to have experienced what that athlete is doing in their training is a really good empath, empathetic uh, way of understanding if you know, I'm suggesting this type of training and might be the way you need to ad, um, get your adaptation. Well, I've got to know what that means. I've got to know what that means from a, a physical perspective, from a load perspective, from a, you know, this is five hours out of my day perspective mm. and what that means. And so, there's an empathy there which I think really does help. Um, you see of, often examples, I'm not saying they're good or bad, of practitioners who have come from in that sport because they've either played that sport or they've trained within that sport, so they understand the dynamics, they understand the currency of what makes that sport um, move along. And that can help. It can sometimes help if you don't have that experience mm -hmm. and actually you can take a fresher look and a bigger picture look and step away from it. But then you've got to build other aspects you've got to work much harder at building other aspects of trust and credibility mm. that you understand mm. the individual and their sport um, so it's a long answer to say I'm not sure yeah because the piece mm. uh, just, just quickly the piece that you picked up on even in the word trust you know how, how we know how we're influenced by trust how we gain trust are we trustworthy uh, do people trust us as a coach if I know that about myself, it'll be easier for me to work with someone yeah. to help them with trustworthiness and to be trusted. So, I, I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? Uh, probably for another day. But there's the, I love the bit about, yes, if I understand the physical stresses and the strains and that impact on, phys on the mental, yeah. um, there's, a, there's a likelihood of a trust. But for me, there's a really deeper... How well do I understand myself and how can that help me um, coach others? This, uh, I don't know why it made me think of this. I've got a friend who works in Formula One, used to work in Formula One. And I remember him saying that he, when he, he was an aerodynamicist, he still is, but working in Formula One, he went out with, um, uh, with Jackie Stewart, who was the principal of the team, around Silverstone. And Jackie Stewart said, I'm going to show you how different drivers drive the car because they're all different. And I was like, okay, fair enough, just driving a car. Because this has implications on how you build the car, and this has implications about how you make the car more aerodynamic for different purposes, go around the corner, going through the, um, the straight line. And he said Jackie Stewart took him through 10 different world-class, world-champion drivers. This is how Michael Schumacher drives. This is how Jensen Button drives. And this is a guy, you know, a, 
Jackie Stewart's an older guy, previous world champion, showing my friend how that, and just that empathy of, no, because he couldn't do that. My friend couldn't do that. He couldn't drive the car on those skills. Jackie Stewart was able to drive that car in the style of all those world champion drivers to show you need to understand the dynamics. You need to understand the edge of the picture here. This is someone who will take it to the extreme because they do this. And I, I found that a fascinating example. And he said, you know, you learn so much about Formula One just by sitting there and seeing a world-class expert. Mm. So um, trying to connect some of those together, because that that's quite left field. Um, yeah, so <laughs> you're talking about someone who's got mastery there over their... Yes. their their sphere, their, their, um, the world that they're working in, that ultimately they wouldn't, they wouldn't have um, had that pre-programmed in. They wouldn't necessarily have gone out and tried to learn some of those techniques. They're learning from a distance. They're, they're reflecting on, on the different ways to achieve a given performance, a given result, yeah. really, in some ways. Mastery being the key word, I think. Yeah, I mean, and then that, that perhaps ultimately is is where we want to get to when we're in our own lives for our own worth about trying to accomplish something of meaning. Mm. We're striving for, for mastery, but we're not necessarily in a position to be able to do that. Um, just expecting to, to sort of go to bed, get an upload, and then next day yeah. we're going to get better. Yeah. Yeah. But just, just to finish off my left field example there, if my friend is the coach and trying to set a, pro, a, a physical training program for an athlete... Mm. They can then go and team up with a master coach who says, well, this kind of athlete does it this way. And you suddenly broaden your horizons. You see different ways of achieving the same outcomes, the same objectives. Okay, so um, so what I'm hearing really is that, that what could act as a stressor, could act as a stimulus, is effectively like an agent for change uh, and improvement. Um, I'm hearing that the, the importance of reflection and incubation is equivalent to the, that learning phase, that ability to, for your body to say, what did you do that for? Okay, let's make sense of it, let's reprogram. So if I experience that stress, again, it's perhaps not going to disturb my homeostasis in the same way. Therefore, there's a fitness, there's a growth, there's an improvement in, in fitness. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts about what this, this whole area is and what we can all learn from it? I pick up two words. One was one you used earlier, which was mastery, and then combining that with wisdom mm-hmm. and the concept of, and that just doesn't come. It comes with effort and mm-hmm. thought and reflection and sometimes pain. We have to work at it intentionally, yeah, you know, deliberately. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes we don't know what that looks like, what it will look like at the end, but the, the belief that mm. uh, intentional good work will take us somewhere. And that requires courage to reframe yeah. it into yeah. this was stressful, uh, I, I, uh, I doubt myself, I'm not sure it went very well, and reframing that into, yeah. well, there's an opportunity to learn. Yeah. It sounds like a mantra as opposed to a natural default Mm. Yeah, yeah. And my final thought really is the truly world class athlete is a different breed you know, they, they have a history of training but they also have that status of where they're at at that moment in time trying to understand that is you know, fascinating but it's hard um, all the work you talked earlier on around some of the real fundamental and uh, lovely work that was done X amount of years ago around adaptation you know, we're still looking for that story in the world class athlete who's done how many thousands of hours of training and training history. Mm. And so I'm still fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by us understanding from those, you know, point something of 1% of people who are at the very top of the tree, uh, understanding that because it is a different story from those who are us mere mortals all on the ground. Yeah, ultimately, even the best athletes, they're going to fail more than they succeed and therefore be yeah. able to pick out the learning from that. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for for exploring this vital concept for us to grasp grasp the nettle in some ways so that we actually um, uh, kick on and improve. I'm always thinking about the the story about Edward Jenner, the, uh, the doctor who discovered uh, antibodies and so on. And, uh, you know, he, he actually got a young lad and cut open a saw and rubbed in it some smallpox. <laughs> 
Um, and as a stress, as a stimulus, yes. that ultimately created antibodies to to protect the future. I don't know whether that would pass the ethics committee uh, these days. So, uh, last question: uh, How stressful was this podcast recording? Jack, one to ten. Four. I've got good headroom at the moment. Four. Okay. Uh, I'll give it a five. A five. Well, thank you once again. Thank you so much. You can follow Jamie on Twitter at Jamie Pringle and Rosie at RosieMays49. You can follow me at Ingham underscore Steve and the wider Supporting Champions content at Support underscore Champs. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and subscribe through supportingchampions.co.uk. Champions.co.uk.